Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church. Before we look into the Word, let's exercise 1 John 1 9 for our spiritual preparation, allowing us to regain the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit so that we can understand His Word. As you know, 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's pause for a moment of silence, and then I will open with prayer. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to assemble with the brethren here at National Capital Bible Church, our church home, our church family, the pivot here in Springfield. And we pray, Father, that as we continue to move through your word, that you would be honored and glorified as we take in your word so that we can make application on a daily basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The call to worship is taken from Psalms 113. Psalms 113, which says the following. Praise, O servant of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or blessed be the name of the Lord from time forth and forevermore. Verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its going down. The Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? None. Who dwells on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap. That he may sit him or seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. Listen to this. He grants the barren woman a home. The barren woman here is a childless woman, a home, like a joyful mother of children. So he's saying, the psalmist is saying here, even the childless woman will be like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. That is wonderful. Very special morning today, as you all know, and so we will proceed and look at the portions of John chapter 11 this morning before we look into uh, the rest of our service, which will conclude with a meeting. But as you know, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten son of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So there you have a string of verses that I've often said that point to the simplicity of salvation. The common thread among all those verses is to simply believe in Christ. And when you do, you have salvation. And so, let me open with prayer, and then we will move through John chapter 11. Father, thank you as always for giving us this opportunity to assemble together as believers in Christ. And help us now through God the Holy Spirit to understand the things that we're going to look at this morning. I ask and pray these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Okay, we're going to push through chapter 11. The last time we looked at this, we went through 
1 through 6, and then this morning we're going to be able to get through to verse 15. Verse 15, so let's take a look and see the following verses. As you'll recall, in chapter 3, I'm going to hit the high points here so that we have the context of um, John chapter 11. Remember that we noticed that Martha and Mary, M&M, candy M&M, decided what course of action Jesus should take. And sometimes we do the same thing, do we not? Jesus should do this. God should do this when we're going through hardship. When there's an emergency, this is what needs to happen. And this is exactly what they thought. The sister sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is what? He's sick. There's an emergency here. Help us out. Let's get the word out to Jesus because we know he's going to be able to help us. You ever felt like that in your life? You know what? Let's fire up a prayer to God. Let's have a prayer meeting and let's make sure we go, uh, go to the throne room of grace and get this to the Lord. Because this is an emergency. So let's emphasize the fact that he loves us, right? So this is what's going on here. The sisters are sending out a word to him. Lord, behold, he whom you love is what? Is sick. He needs your help. So they're getting the word out. They're sending a text message. They're sending an email. Lord, the person that you love is sick. So he obviously would hurry because he loves them and especially their brother Lazarus. If this is true, the Lord loves, it is true that the Lord loves his children. That includes you and us. Everyone here he loves. But we should never presume the course of action that love will take as Jesus' response to the sister's request. And that's what's going to be illustrated here, as you'll recall. We look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Remember I pointed out this is the the word here, agapao, the verb. And we we know we're familiar with the, the noun form, agape, right? What's agape? Love. The unconditional love that comes from whom? Comes from God. So Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Before we are told of Jesus' delay, we're told of his love. Why? Because we're going to sit there and say, where's the love of God? He's supposed to be there right away. So interestingly enough, John goes and chronologically shows us, before the delay, the love towards Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Why? So that we won't forget this. And this is important sometimes. We... We sit here and we go through hardship and we say, where is God? Where is God during this time? You know, hardship hits us and we're sitting here. I prayed already. Where is God? And that's that's human nature. And this is why when you get to verse 5, the stress is on the love of God. Sometimes we don't feel the love of God. Sometimes we feel like God isn't hearing us. This happened And if God was only here earlier, this wouldn't have happened. But the Bible tells us he loves us. The Bible tells us that Jesus loved Martha, Jesus loved Mary, and Jesus loved Lazarus. There's no doubt about that. And remember, I pointed out that because his actions do not appear to be actions of love, here the emphasis is on the individual. I highlighted the the words loved and so that you can see that the direction of the love is going to all three, towards Martha, towards Mary, and G- and Lazarus. The verb love is first in the action, stressing the emphasis. This is in the Greek text. Love is in the very front of the sentence. But interestingly enough, each of the three names is in the accusative case, making them, all three, the object of his love so that you cannot misunderstand that. They're all the object of his love. Each is preceded by the definite article, which focuses on each one individually. It's like saying, I love you, Martha. 
I love you, Mary. I love Lazarus. I love you all. And in fact, everyone in this room, your name is preceded by the word love. I love you, Bill. I love you, David. I love you, Laura. I love you, Dan. That is the beauty of the text of Scripture. So that when we're going through hardship, you're going to get hit during the week. The truth is, you're going to sit here and say, where is the love of God? I'm a believer. I go to church. Why wasn't he there for me? And we're going to sit there and we're going to crumble. We're going to implode and say, wait a minute. Why is God not hearing me? Why is he not answering my prayers? Obviously, he doesn't love me. That's the whole force of John chapter 11. Because in the end, you'll notice what happens in the end. Apparently, Jesus was not there on time and Lazarus was in the tomb. So the sisters are going to sit there and say, wait a minute, we sent the word out to him. He didn't even come. Remember what I said last week? If someone is in the hospital, you don't take your time. You get their stat. If you are really a friend, you're going to be there by his side, by her side. There's no delay. Even if there's traffic on the freeway, somehow you're going to get there because your friend needs you. They're in the hospital. You're going to be there and say, look, I'm here. You're going to hold their hand and say, look, you're not by yourself. I'm by your side. I'm praying for you. I'm your friend. Why? Because you don't want them to be alone. You know the feeling of being alone. Loneliness is painful. And that's why the sister said, get the word out to Jesus because Jesus loves him. If he's going to get here on time, guess what? Our brother's going to be okay. He's sick, but he's going to be okay. We know that for a fact. Why? He fed 5,000. He fed 4,000. He healed someone from a distance. Man, if Jesus was just here, he's going to be okay. Get the word out to Jesus right now. Don't you ever feel like that? We need to pray about this situation right now. We're going to lose our job. Companies setting back, cutting down. Let's pray now. Let's go to church. Because if we could start going to church, Maybe God is going to answer our prayers. You ever feel like that at times? You know people like that at times? But that's the reality of human nature because it's some, that's the time that we sometimes go to God only when we need something. But that should not be the case. We shouldn't send a text. We shouldn't send a prayer out when problems start to rise. This is where we talk about inculcating doctrine now, not when the crisis hits. Because when the crisis hits, you should have already stored up the doctrine in your soul so that when you are emotional and you're going through all sorts of things, you can sit back and say, wait a minute, God causes all things to work together for good to what? To those who love him. And those who follow according to his, what's that, Debbie? Precepts. So what if you're not following his precepts? He still loves you. You still love him, right? But sometimes we don't think about, we're not having a theological discussion when the crisis hits, right? You're not sitting here, what's the Greek say? No, you're sitting here saying, what does God say? Where is God? Where's his love now? I need it now. Don't give me some Bible class right now. I need him now. Can we not pray and get answers now, isn't that the case? Look, the reality is, we go to class now, we go to church now, so that when a crisis hits, we're not sitting here saying, what's the text say? Is it in the accusative case? We're not talking about that during a crisis. We should have already stored that up so that when we are going through a crisis, we can say, wait a minute, regardless of whether or not it's in the accusative case, I know God loves me. I know that for a fact. And I know that he will cause all things to work together for good because I love him. Not because Bill said it, but because I know my relationship between me and God. That's why it's always been between us, the individual, and the believer and God. It's always two ways. God loves us. How do we know that? God for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever what? Whoever is good. Whoever what? 
believes in him should not perish but have everlasting. That should be already home base. We should already know that for a fact. If we're waffling on that, then no wonder why we're afraid. No wonder why we're doubting. That should never be the case. We should have that locked in and ready to go. Lock and loaded, as they would say, right, Rick? Lock and loaded. You should know that without a shadow of a doubt. You're lock and loaded. You don't have to question that. You should know that your love with God is safe and secure till the day of Christ Jesus. So that when you get hit with this, you know that regardless of the end result, God loves you still. Because the truth is, by the time we're done with this, you're going to sit here and say, if that were me, how would I, how would I have handled this? Because what happens at the end? Their brother does not make it. Let's be real. This is here to show us, and we're going to see that there's something in here that shows us that this doesn't make sense. This does not make sense. Watch, let's continue, or else we'll go into, we'll go beyond the normal time here. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. Remember that? What's the problem with this verse? He What's that? He didn't go right away. He's a, he's sick in the hospital, but he did not go right away. David, if you had if Laura was in the hospital, would you go right away? You don't wait. First of all, Laura would kick his butt. We would probably kick his butt too. It's normal and natural to make sure you get there in a hurried fashion. But here, this does not make sense. When he, who's he referring to? Jesus. When Jesus heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. That doesn't sound like he loved Jesus. Is that a description of someone who loved Lazarus? In our normal finite minds, that doesn't make sense. In fact, that's the reason why Martha and Mary sent a message to him. Because they knew if he would get, if he would get the message, Jesus loves him, so obviously he's gonna come sooner. He's gonna hurry. But please look at the flow of this, okay? John does not want us to miss this. When he heard he was sick, Jesus, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, who so loved the world, right? This is his response. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That doesn't sound like he was in a hurry. He stayed two more days. He delayed visiting Lazarus. And we all know what happened at the end. The sisters were probably a little disappointed. We can only understand this verse when we recognize that the Lord's visit is timed to give Mary and Martha, M&M, the most in terms of spiritual growth. Remember, when we go through hardship and Jesus doesn't answer your prayers or mine, the big picture has always been to advance us in our spiritual walk, our spiritual life, okay? That is always going to be a key. We don't like to hear that, but that's what he prefers. He never promised us comfort. Did you know that? He never said, for God so loved the world that he's going to give you comfort. No. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going to be happy. Happy campers. Does it say that? Not at all. In the context of John 11, there is a delay so much so that his, their brother passed. He wasn't there on time. He sat there two additional days so that Lazarus would pass. He didn't hurry. This gave Mary and Martha and the disciples something to look forward to or to be shocked. It was the shock component that Jesus was going to give them. Just like us. When he doesn't answer our prayers, we sit there and we get upset, right? Why? Why weren't you here? 
Why didn't you answer my prayers? Didn't I give something in the box last Sunday? I gave $10 this time. You saw me, Lord. It's not about that. It's not what you give. It's not what you do. It's whether or not he's going to allow us to grow. Are we going to be conforming to the likeness of Christ? Are we going to advance spiritually? Are we going to mature? Is this going to set us up for the bigger picture down the road so that we can trust him the next time around? He heard that he was sick. He stayed two more days in the place where he was. Verse 7. Then after he said to the disciples, after this he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So when you look at verses 7 through 8, his disciples probably looked at one another and wondered, is Jesus crazy? Does he know what just happened? Judea was where people had wanted to kill him. Can someone read John 10, 33 to 39, please? Bill? Yes, please. Oh, I'm sorry. John 10, 33, and then David. Can you read 39? Okay, very good. Okay, so what's the point here? They wanted to what? They wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him. So his disciples were saying, look, wait a minute. Why does Jesus want to go back there? Does he not remember this? Does he want to go back and get killed? They wanted to stone him. Now he wants to go back again. What's the problem with him? Well, <clears throat> this was the area where Jesus' opponents were strongest and where his life was in great danger. But though one can appreciate their concern, the disciples apparently hadn't observed that a lot of people were had, having trouble what? Throughout this entire time, you know, there were people trying to get him, but somehow he was able to evade them. Did you notice that? They couldn't get him. He's like a, a chicken. You remember Rocky when uh, Mickey was having uh, Rocky um, train? He said, if you could get that rooster, you can win. And so did Rock, what did Rocky do? He was out there trying to catch the chicken. Now, some of you are looking at me like, what's that got to do? <laughs> In the movie Rocky, let me just paint the picture, okay? Part of the training was... He said, if you could, I don't remember if it was a chicken or a rooster, but he told Rocky to go after this chicken out in the, out in the yard. And so Rocky was running around trying to chase the rooster. And at the, like after the training, he grabbed the chicken. He said, I got it. And Mickey said, you're going to be able to win now. That was part of the training. So these people were not able to, cra- to catch Jesus. He evaded all of them. Even stones, they wanted to stone him, but he was always gone. He would always leave. If you look at John chapter 7, 32 to 33, 30 to 32, you don't have to look at it now, but maybe notate this. <clears throat> John 7, 44 to 46, John 8, 20, John 10, 39. You'll notice that they tried to kill him, but they could not. He always evaded, he always walked away, he always left. Why? Because it was not the time. It was not the time yet. Jesus had not gone to the cross yet. So you'll notice that in each instance, there is specific verse, words there, it was not the hour yet. It was not the hour yet. So God has a specific time for each person, each individual, and when he allows it to happen, that's the time, it's time to go home. Each person. So John 7, 30 to 32, John 7, 44 to 46, John 8, 20, John 10, 39. Every instance there, they were not able to get him. Why? Because it was not the time yet. We all have the appointed time, the scripture says. That's a wonderful thing in the plan of God 
because we're impervious to death or anything until it's his perfect time for you and for me. Eight, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, teacher, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Do you remember what he says in John, uh, John 11, 7? Let us, remember that? Jesus says, let us go to Judea again. Let's all go. Come on, guys, we're a team, right? Let us go. But notice what happens here. There's a, there's a shift. It goes to the singular. This seems a reasonable objective from a human perspective, human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Of course, they should have realized that the one saying this is he who heals the sick. Remember, he heals the sick. He walks on water. He feeds the multitudes with a single meal. Jesus had spoken of us, plural. Let's go, guys. Remember, we're a team, right? I'm mentoring you. Follow my lead. He says, let us, in here, what did the Jews say? Or what did uh, the disciples say? Well, huh? Yeah. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, let us? Uh, not really. No, we know what can happen if we go. So if you want to go, you go. Not the car, you go, but you go. They sought to stone you, And are you going again? There's a shift here. The the disciples are like, do you want to go? All right, you go then. We're not going. So Jesus had spoken of us going to Judea, but when the disciples reply, they say, are you going there again? The implication of the singular may be that they felt if Jesus went to Judea, he would go alone. They had no plans to go. Uh, we got we got to wash our clothes. My wife won't let me go. You can't. Be careful, Lord. You know, um, you go. So there's a very subtle shift, right? You, us, no, I don't think so. That's the word. The word sought is zeteo. It means to look, try to obtain. They were seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Don't you know what just happened? They tried to get you, you remember? As if Jesus didn't didn't know this. But at the same time, they were exposed to what Jesus was capable of doing. So they should have thought, well, maybe this is a great opportunity to trust in him again. He did feed the multitudes. He did walk on water. He did feed, he did heal someone from a distance. Could this be a learning opportunity for us? Should we really be afraid? Yes, they were trying to seek him out. They were trying to kill him and stone him. But notice how he was able to evade all this. So why should we worry? He's telling us to go with him. Should we not go, you guys? What do you guys think? Let's huddle. Should we go? Rock, paper, scissors. Rock, paper, scissors. Should we go? What would you do? Would you go if they were trying to kill Jesus? Knowing what you know, what he has done prior to chapter 11. Walking on water. Healing thousands, feeding 5,000, 4,000. Would you go? Be honest. If you knew that they were seeking after Jesus, trying to kill him, would you go? And would anyone go? Probably not, if we're honest, right? Because they were not playing with him. They wanted to kill him. But at the same time, we know what he's capable of doing. But see, here's the thing. If we study Bible doctrine on a consistent basis, if we take in his word on a consistent basis, we should be able to say, Wherever he goes, I'll go. The reality is, we should say that. We should be able to trust him with our life. But that's not always easy. But we should at least be able to say, if he doesn't answer our prayers, we can still trust that the perfect God of this universe 
is doing something perfectly for me. Maybe I don't understand it right now, but I remember covering John chapter 11 in church. And I remember that his disciples were a little confused. They, here's Jesus saying, hey, let's go. And the disciples said, no, you go. They were terrified. So it's human nature to sit here and say, well, I don't always want to listen to Jesus. I don't always want to follow Jesus. But if I would just trust him just the same, then I'm going to benefit from it. I'm going to benefit from it. In fact, this doesn't make sense here. Jesus is asking them to follow him when in fact they're after him and they, he, if he cared for them, would probably say, look, he could have said, you guys just wait right here. I'll be back. But we're going to discover that, no, what had transpired was for them. All that happened before they left was for their benefit. Their benefit. Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. But yeah, you don't understand this. But all that had happened is for your benefit, your edification. It's for you all. Listen to that. Okay? Listen to me here. All that had transpired, the delay, the two days delay, the death of the brother of Martha and Mary was for their edification that they might believe. So that when he ascends and is seated at the right hand of the Father, he can, he can let them go solo. They're ready. Do you know that what they did, the twelve disciples, they learned from the Master himself so that when he ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, what you and I are experiencing today is the result of their efforts? We're still seeing the impact of what they did 2,000 years ago. You know that? And if we as a local church would do what they did, the 12, and we have more than 12 here, if we would do what they did, we can continue to improve and impact the future of our kids and their kids' kids because we're holding the line as set forth by our Lord himself who transferred and taught his disciples who then went forth and shared the gospel so that the future generations that would eventually reach us would allow us to acquiesce to Jesus Christ. If it were not for those 12 men, we'd be headed for the lake of fire. But they were impacted with situations like this. And they said, hey, did we not remember? Don't we remember what Jesus did? And that motivated them and propelled them to maintain what they learned and pushed it forward so that we would benefit from it. And we would have records like this for our edification. So moving forward. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. The day is the time assigned to each of us in which to work. To work in God's ordained time is to be impervious to destruction. Jesus told them that the day, the time of his public earthly ministry was the opportunity for action. While Jesus, the light of, the world, of this world, was with them, they could walk and not stumble. Verse 10. If one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not what? Please notice, I'm, I'm stressing the light is not in him. The person who walks in the night is the one who is not in fellowship with God, but instead is living in sin. And first John chapter one, let's turn there really quickly, rustling of pages. I always love listening to the, the word of God being open. First John chapter one, five through seven. Right left toward to the left of Revelation. First John 1, 5 through 7. <clears throat> Listen closely. Chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare, declare to you that God is light, that's his essence, and in him is no darkness at all. If, conditional clause, if we say that we have fellowship with him, but 
walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he, God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's a vertical relationship. We have fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So going back to the slides here, the person who walks in the night is the one who is not in fellowship with God but instead is living in sin. And 1 John 1, 5-7 is speaking of experience, not position. Positionally, we are all in Christ, but experientially, that's not always the case. That's the whole purpose for 1 John 1, 9. Experientially, we can walk in the light as he is in the light, as per 1 John chapter 1. But we're not always walking in the light. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Let's go back there and I'll read it. 1 John chapter 2, 9 through 10. What does it mean to walk in the light? Well, let's listen to John. 1 John 2, 9 through 10. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Verse 10. But he who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. You see that? So what's walking in the light referring to in First John chapter 2? You guys get it? Huh? Filled with the Spirit? Let's look again. That's true, but look at what it says in verse 9 and 10. He who says he's in the what? In the light... And hates his brother is in darkness until now. So what do you have to be doing to be in the light? Showing love. Towards who? Brother. That's what it says, right? He who says says he's in the light but hates his brother. Anybody hate me? Your brother? You're not in the light. If you hate me. You're in darkness, but he who loves his brother, Freddie, abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. So it's loving the brethren, loving the person next to you, not your husband, not your wife, but your brother in Christ. So look at verse 10 now, John eleven ten. If someone walks in the night, he stumbles. And when you connect that with first John two, it's when you're not loving your brother. Because the light is not in him experientially. You're still a believer, but you're not experientially sharing or walking in the light. Why? Because you're hating your brother. But if you're walking in the light, you're loving your brother. So the person who walks in the night is the one who is not in fellowship with God, but instead is living in sin because he is not loving his brother, as per 1 John chapter 2. Now going on to verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, um, our friend Lazarus sleeps. What's that mean? But I go that I may wake him up. Well, here we go. Sleep is a common New Testament figure of speech for death. You can compare this with 1 Corinthians 11.30, and it is used in reference to believers only. Believers only. Our friend Lazarus sleeps means that Lazarus is dead. The disciples do not grasp this initially. And when he says, I go that I may wake him up, they do not realize that he was speaking of raising Lazarus from the dead. The word is used for literal sleep four times in the New Testament and for death 14 times and always referring to the believer. This verse should not be interpreted to teach that when believers die, they experience what some call soul sleep. It's not soul sleep. And a lot of the, um, what's that uh, religion that teaches souls? Seventh-day Adventists. They believe that you go to sleep for thousands or millions of years, but it's not teaching that. When believers die, they go directly and consciously into the presence of the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, 8 buttresses that as well as Philippians 1, 23.
So remember, now he says, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I might wake him up from the sleep, his sleep. <clears throat> so verse 12, when the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. That word get well is our verb sozo. Anybody remember where that word is also used? What's that mean? Sozo. Saved. That's right. So the misunderstanding of the disciples, when they say, Lord, if he slumbers, he will get well, is a bit humorous if you think about it. The word gets well is sozo, which means to save. It may mean to save physically as here, or it may mean to save spiritually as in Acts 16.31. What's Acts 16.31? Very good, Scott. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The disciples display the pattern of response to Jesus' teaching found often in this gospel. They take what Jesus meant spiritually and interpret it literally. Sleep was meant to be a metaphor for death, but they take it to be literal sleep. Scott, how much time do I have? Good? Two more hours? Verse 13. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. So Jesus spoke of his death and under the figurative phrase of sleeping, but they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep in a literal and natural sense. Verse 14, Jesus said to them plainly, well, Lazarus is dead. He's not really sleeping. That's what I meant. Disciples were confused thinking that Jesus was speaking about natural sleep. When you follow 12 to 13, so he said Lazarus had died. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Verse 14 is very abrupt and matter of fact. These words can be understood only in light of the purpose clause that follows. So this is important, okay? There's a purpose behind this, and that's why for us as believers, we have to see again why sometimes God will allow us to go through hardship. There's a purpose clause that follows verse 14, and this is what it says. Let me read 14 first. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Why? I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may, what? Believe. Is this when they're going to be born again? No, they were already saved, right? This can't be referring to the disciples believing that Jesus is the Messiah. They already believe that. If you check out chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 6, verse 69, they already believed. Instead, Jesus is likely suggesting that the sign will later contribute to them believing that he had risen from the dead. You find this in chapter 21 through 29. They had difficulty here. But if Lazarus had not died, the disciples would not had the op- would not have had this opportunity to have their faith challenged so that they can grow and mature. Right? Let that let that sulk for a little bit. If Lazarus had not died, the disciples would not have had this opportunity to have their faith challenged so that they can grow and mature. Isn't that the goal of the Christian life? To be challenged, to grow and mature. But I know what you're sitting saying there, sitting down and saying, I don't want to grow. I'm fine. As long as I'm saved, I'm fine. You know, my professor at seminary would often say, well, when a person says, as long as I'm saved, it's kind of like landing in the island of Hawaii. And just saying, well, I'm in the plane. As long as I'm here, I'm good. What about getting off the plane and enjoying all of it? Well, no, as long as I'm in Hawaii, I'm okay. Come on now. We have to mature and grow. That's the plan of God. That's part of the plan. So he will sometimes rock our world so that we'll sit there and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? But in the end, it's to fortify our faith so that we would grow and mature. Not so that we'll remain as children of God, but that we would grow into adulthood. He wants us to be adults, spiritual adults. 
I mean, how many of you have children? Remember when they were kids? Wouldn't you want, didn't you look forward to the day that they would grow and put their own shoes on? Could you imagine they say, Mommy, I want milk. I want milk. They're 18. And they're still saying, Dada, I want milk. Eventually, you would want them to say, Hey, son, let's get some steak. But if they're saying, Dada, I want milk. After a while, that gets old. You sit here and say, you know what? There's a problem. You gotta have, well, you, you gotta want more than milk. You're 18 now. So likewise, God wants us to mature and grow spiritually. He doesn't want us to remain as infants. He does not want us to remain as children of God. He wants us to advance. And the only way to advance is to sometime go through hardship and difficulty. Because that's how our muscles, our spiritual muscles are challenged. That's how we grow. So that as life hits us, we're going to be able to look up and trust him and say, well, I remember when, fill in the blanks, two years ago we were going through this. God saw us through. He was faithful and took me through it all. He was faithful. We have these instances in our lives, honey, when God saw us through and we were able to weather it together. So likewise, all of us, uh, church, we're going to go through hardship, okay? I wish I could give you a message that's going to say, look, no more problem. All you got to do is claim Romans 8.28 every day. That's not, that's not always going to be the case. We're looking at a passage together that he says here, I'm glad for your sakes. I hung out two more days, not so that I wasn't afraid of the people who are coming after me or where we're going, I'm here to show you that by staying two additional days, it's going to hit this climax like never before. So that when we arrive, you may believe. You may believe. I'm purposely allowing this to grow into something bigger than life itself. So that when you see, you're not going to mistake it as coincidental. You're going to realize that I am who I said I am. I'm glad for you all's sake I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So in closing, this is where we'll conclude today because I know we have a meeting afterwards and uh, I don't want Scott to sit sit there and pull the uh, floor out and uh, we're going to be dropped into the alligator pit. So some observations. We may observe that God's love cannot necessarily be judged by what we see. Okay. From the human perspective, the delay was unkind and actually like rude and ill-mannered, but not so in actuality. Not so in actuality when you see the big picture, when you see the purpose, the clause, the conditional clause in the middle of the passage. Okay. There's a reason for it all. We must remember that in the middle of conflict, God remains in control. What's another word for control? He remains as? Starts with an S. Sovereign. He remains sovereign. In the midst of the, in the, in the heat of the battle, He remains in control. I know it doesn't seem like that at times. But it doesn't matter how we feel at the moment. It's based on the veracity of God's word, his truth. Because that's the authority, not how we feel at the moment. But the truth is, sometimes we, our re- emotions go amok, right? But the truth is, that's when we have to settle for what the word of God says. That's the authority. That has the last say in all things. And when we anchor our soul in the word of God, that gives us peace. That surpasses all understanding. When we recognize that he is sovereign, then we align ourselves with his will and say, is God perfect? Is he perfect? Okay, if he's perfect and he does things perfectly, then everything will come out perfectly in his time. It always will. In the middle of a fight, God remains in control. God's objective for us is to grow in our faith, grow us in our faith and will many times use life-challenging circumstances to get our attention. That's the truth, right? Sometimes it's the circumstances, the rough circumstances that get our attention. 
like nothing else can. Lastly, to walk in darkness refers to being out of fellowship. So what do we do to get back into fellowship? 1 John 1.9, we've got to hit that every single time. Some of you might be saying, well, I hit it like a thousand times a day. Well, keep hitting it a thousand times a day. We need it because that's when we're restored and that's when we have his direct influence to assist us to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. And when we do, that's the time that things start to settle in our soul because when we're running amok and our emotions are going all over the place, we need to hit that First John 1, 9 and say, Lord, that was wrong. I know that I'm, I'm discounting your faithfulness, but you know what? I need to get back in fellowship with you. I'm wrong. You're right at all times. I recall what we learned in class just last week. And so if this is the case with Martha and Mary, that's the case with Freddie as well. So Lord, you remain in control. You might be teaching me something. Sometimes I don't understand what you're doing. Sometimes we don't understand what you're doing. But I trust, we trust that you are in control. You are sovereign. You do things perfectly. So who am I to to question you? Who am I to be a Martha and Mary? So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. You might be setting me up for something spectacular that I'm not aware of. You set these things up in such a way that your perfect will and perfect plan will be the unfolding beauty of it all. So in closing, and we're done now, I'd like to say that I want to pray that we as a church will continue to lock shields and pull together. You know, we've got a very important meeting uh, in a bit, in a few minutes, and I'd just like to pray that God's will be done. We know that He causes all things to work, and we as believers in Christ will continue to honor Him and glorify Him in all things. And if we believe that God is perfect and He does things perfectly, He will. He will. My wife and I have always been people of faith and we could tell you stories like similar to this where as long as we hold on to him and trust him via faith, he will work. And I'm confident that uh, God is going to work amidst all of us all. So let's close in prayer and, and we will have a meeting after this as per Scott and the board. Father, thank you as always for giving us this opportunity to reflect on your word and to be reminded that no matter how bad the situation may look from the human perspective, you remain in control. And sometimes you allow those things to occur so that in the end you get the glory, you get the honor. You prove to us that there's no way we can settle the issue. There's no way we can solve the problem that lies before us. But with you in control, you in charge, we know that everything will work because everything in this world has to align with your will and your purpose because you alone are sovereign. I thank you, Father, for this church and pray that we would continue to honor you in all that we do. Every decision that will be made would be honoring and glorifying to you. We thank you, Father, that you love us and you've brought us all together so that we could know you personally. And I pray that National Capital Bible Church will continue to be a strong pivot in Springfield and that we would impact the area so that you would be known in the highways and byways, just like the disciples had advanced the message as set forth by the Lord himself. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to read your word and to study it together with the brethren here this morning. And we ask and pray this in Christ's matchless name. Amen.